I came to faith in Christ when I was 18 years old. And prior to trusting in Christ as my Lord and Savior, I attended church. I prayed before I went to bed, and I tried to be a good person. But I lived out the song, that old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love with too many faces. And I searched for love in life in all sorts of different places, in athletics, accomplishments, relationships, but nothing seemed to satisfy. And then I met God, who is love, and he changed my life from the inside out. He gave me meaning and purpose and direction for my life. And while I was in college, I started to grow in my relationship with God. I was hanging around some friends, learning more about God, and I actually wrote a song about life. Now, this may seem hard to believe for some of you that know me, because I don't sing very well. Uh, I can't carry a tune, even if it was in my pocket. And, and I don't play an instrument. I can barely play my iPod. But I was so inspired and excited about my new relationship with God and my new life in Christ that I actually wrote a song about life. And I didn't just write it. I sang the song to a few hundred of my classmates at school. Uh, someone had a great idea to put me up on our final Vespers at the university I attended. So I went up there, I was a little nervous, and I sang the song that I wrote to a few hundred of my classmates, and it was horrible. It was a complete flop. People did not know if they should laugh or cry or howl. It was absolutely a bomb. And I got together with some friends that were there that moment, and we sort of reminisced about this song that I sang about life, and we had a little moment together, and we said, hey, let's, let's, let's sing that song again. And uh, so just to kind of give you a glimpse of the moment that I had back in college, some of my college friends got together, and we couldn't go back to the Vespers experience where I was singing before hundreds of people, but we created a little behind-the-scenes music video of the song Life, and here it is. I think I was about 19 years old and in college and I was having breakfast. I don't eat Life cereal a lot, but for some reason I happened to have purchased Life cereal. And it was morning. I'm a morning person. And there it was, Life. And I just thought, Life, Life, Life. And that's when it clicked. So my friend Rob calls me up early in the morning and he says, Chad, I, I've eaten my Life cereal and I just got this idea. I'm looking at this cereal I'm thinking, Life, Life, life I can't get it out of my head and I said that's that's Jesus you're thinking about Jesus because Jesus is life and we're always wanting to have life in Jesus so let's let's create a band me and you and and Sean and we'll be we'll be the band called life you know I remember like it was yesterday in college had my whole life in front of me I was thinking ah, what could I I could go study more I could be a musician so I started to learn how to play the guitar and, and when Chad approached me to play, I was so excited because I was like, yes, a band, I'm in. And then what he said is he got the song Life, and I started thinking about the song, and I thought, E, L-I-F-E, I know how to play an E on a guitar, and it just happened from there. Life is like a river that just keeps on flowing. 
When you're trusting in the Lord, it keeps you growing. Thought about it many times, is life worth living? Then I trust in the Lord, He keeps on giving, He gives me life. Oh, Jesus is life. Oh, life. He gives me life, 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 life. He just is life. I'm glad, I think, yes, Encore, thank you for that, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it so much because back when I sang it on that original moment, it was not quite as well received, but there was this moment that we had when I sang this song and I had this song in my heart and I sang it before my classmates, and although it didn't go so well, as I walked the halls the next day, people were singing my song. They were singing live, 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 and they sang it the next day. And the people were coming up to me and saying, hey, you know, that song was kind of goofy, but can you tell me more about how to have this life that you seem to be living? Because inside all of us, there's this longing for life. There's this song inside all of us that longs to live an abundant, free life that is worth living. And the Gospel of John writes about this life that we can have in Christ. We've been talking about it the last few weeks. We're going to talk about it the next few weeks. And John, the biographer of Jesus, writes these words as a summary of the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 20, verse 30, we read this. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded. Jesus did all sorts of miracles, all sorts of things that are not recorded in this book. But John wrote a few things down, a few miraculous signs. And why did John write these miracles down? John did this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what this series is about. That's what this book is about. That's what this church, that's what our God is about, giving us life, a better life, more than just spinning a wheel and making it to the end, thinking that you'd be a millionaire with more money than your friends. Instead of eating food that spoils. Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils, but live a life that is eternal, that is better than merely living for today. And so today we want to look at this Gospel of John. We're going to continue our series. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to John chapter 6, verse 1. The words will also be on the screen in your few Bibles. It's page 1055. We're going to continue in our series in the book of John, in John chapter 6. Next week, we're going to be in John chapter 4. Jeff Burton will be here from the Northwest Conference. But this Sunday is my last Sunday uh, giving you a, a sermon. And, um, and that's kind of hard, I must say. It's, it's, uh, it's a bit emotional uh, for me. And as I was thinking about uh, sharing with you uh, my, my final message as your pastor... I, I thought about some of the things that I could say. You know, I could return to our mission, Go Love Live, and, and talk about how we can go and, 
be people of compassion and make disciples and love God and live in freedom and community. And, and I, I thought about maybe talking about, you know, final words from Pastor Chad. You know, sort of pontificate, hey, if, I, if I'm going to give you one last word, this is the last words that I would give you. And, and then I thought about maybe rehearsing all those wonderful things that God has done you know, rehearsing maybe the, our, our experiences in our worship services or, or the Do Something campaign or, or some of the opportunities that we've had to serve in our community or giving more details about Spark Good or Covenant Kids Congo or the Dominican and, and rehearsing all the ways that God has been at work in our lives over the last number of years. But I decided just to simply return to the Gospel of John and preach the next chapter in his book. Because although I'm leaving Maple Grove Covenant Church as your pastor, Jesus is not. Jesus is still the spiritual head of this church. And Jesus came down from heaven to live the life we couldn't live, die the death we deserve to die so that we might have life in his name. And in John chapter 6, Jesus takes an ordinary piece of food. He takes bread. We have a bread maker cooking to my left. You will smell the scent of bread throughout our morning because Jesus took ordinary bread, nourishment, physical nourishment, bread that we would sometime pass by at a grocery store, but in those days they ate, they prayed for their daily bread. And Jesus took bread and he taught a tremendous lesson what it means to live a better life. And in John chapter 6, verse 4, we read the following. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountainside. He sat down with his disciples, the Jewish Passover was near. Jesus already healed the official son. He already turned the water into wine. He healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. Word on the street is that the sick were getting well. And people started to gather to see what might happen next in the presence of Jesus. And when Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him. And he said, Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat. He said, Philip, we've got a problem. A great crowd has gathered around us, and they look hungry. They've been listening to me preach for a very long time. They've, they've seen me heal the sick. They're getting tired. Where shall we buy bread, physical nourishment, for all these people to eat? But Jesus wasn't only looking to solve a hunger problem. Verse 6. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Isn't that just like Jesus? He already had in mind what he was going to do. He already had a plan, a plan in place. He already had food in his mind. He already knew how to feed over 5,000 people. He did this only to test him. Oftentimes, we see our problems as problems. 
We see our problems at work, in our marriage, at home, with our children, at school. We see hundreds of people needing food, and we respond like Philip did. Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. There's no way, Jesus, that this problem will be solved. It's too big. It's too great. There's no way we can feed all these people present. We see a problem. We see problems in our marriage, problems in our home, problems with our children, problems inside our own hearts, problems at work and at school. We see problems, but God sees opportunities to test us, strengthen us, and develop our character and our faith in Him. Author and speaker Tim Elmore states that tests are the primary way to spiritual and character progress. And then he lists all sorts of different tests in his book, Habitudes. And some of the tests that he listed out are the test of small things. This test comes when we are asked to do something beneath our potential and talent. It proves how faithful we are to commitment and whether we are ready for great opportunities. And then it's the test of stewardship. This test comes to demonstrate how wisely and generously we're handling the resources we have been given. Often we wish we had more or different resources. God says, use what you have. And then there is the wilderness test. This test comes when we feel spiritually dry, as if we are in a desert. It reveals our potential to change and enter a new level of growth. It proves that we are able to perform even when life isn't fun. And then there is the authority test. This test comes to reveal our attitude and willing submission to God-given authority. Even when we disagree, before we can be good leaders, we must learn to be good followers. And then, of course, there is the offense test. This test examines how we act when we become offended. Everyone is vulnerable, but leaders are more likely to be criticized since they are up front. This test is about how quickly we can forgive others. And Tim Elmore writes all sorts of different tests that we all experience all throughout our lives. And then he writes these words. Before God can use you greatly, he must test you deeply. Before God can use you greatly, he must test you deeply. Because God does not see our problems as problems. He sees them as opportunities to test strengthen, develop our character and our faith in him. But Philip failed the test. He didn't think it was possible to feed over 5,000 hungry people. And Andrew, Simon Brothers, uh, Simon Peter's brother, wasn't that far behind him. Verse 8, we read this. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. He said, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far Will they go among so many? Here's a little food, Jesus. I hope it helps, but it's really little, and the problem's so big, I don't think that we're going to be able to feed all these people. But Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 men, maybe 5, 10, 15,000 people. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed them who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And the people ate as much as they wanted. The original Old Country Buffet. They had all the fish, all the bread, 
as much as they wanted to eat. No one left hungry. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, and they filled the twelve baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Jesus fed five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand people. Everyone got something to eat. No one left hungry. Jesus miraculously provided physical nourishment, food for the crowd. But did you notice that Jesus did not perform this miracle out of nothing? He did not speak like he spoke at creation, let there be light, and there was light. He didn't say, let there be bread, and there was bread. Jesus took what they gave him. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and he multiplied it. He transformed it into a feast for thousands and thousands of people because that's exactly what God does. That's exactly who God is. God takes our limited amount of time, our limited amount of energy, our limited amount of resources. He takes the things that we give him as a gift and he transforms them. He multiplies them for the sake of others. That's what God does with our small acts of service, with our small gifts of generosity. God takes our gifts and he transforms them for the sake of others. But did you notice where Jesus received the food? It wasn't from Philip and Andrew, these disciples. Did you notice where Jesus received the resources for his miracle? It was the boy, a nameless boy, most likely a young man, the type of person that we would overlook because of his age, his lack of experience, his limited resources, but not Jesus. Jesus takes what this young person has to offer, and he feeds thousands of people. A couple years ago, I, had a, I met a young man named Charlie. And Charlie was going through a difficult time as a senior in high school, and he came to me, and we had a conversation about his life, and he reconnected with the source of life, Christ, and, and he started to grow in his relationship with God and as a young man. And as he was growing, I asked Charlie this question. I said, Charlie, this seems to be helpful for you and your relationship with God. He seemed to be growing and becoming a better man. Do you think maybe your friends could benefit from some of these conversations? And he says, probably, I'll, I'll ask. And he asked one, two, three, four guys. They all said no. But Charlie didn't give up. He took his five loaves and two fish. He took his limited life transformation and his limited amount of influence among his friends. And he asked Charlie. And Charlie asked Alex and Jake and Grant and others. And he says, why don't you come with me? Why don't you listen and grow with me. I'm learning to grow as a young man and as a leader in my faith. And Charlie took a step of faith, and God took his two fish and his five loaves, and he met with one guy and two guys and three guys, and all of a sudden, five, ten, thirty young men started to gather, and they called themselves the BMC, the Better Men's Club. And they started to grow, and as I gathered with these men, I saw God miraculously 
transforming these young men's lives. And then Oscar Murillo, the pastor at Nairobi Chapel, came to the BMC one day, and he asked these young men to take what was happening among them to Kenya and to reach other young adults and then to minister to young people. And so they did. There was 20-plus people who went to Africa over the summer. Half of them were from the BMC, and God took what they had to offer, and he multiplied it, and he transformed their lives and the lives of others because that's what God does. There's an article that our local newspaper wrote about the transforming work that happened through these former Crimson athletes and how God used these five loaves and two fish to do a transforming work in and through the lives of people, young men that we often overlook because they're just too young. They don't have a lot of life experience. They would only have two loaves or five loaves and two fish. And so often we miss opportunities to see God's miraculous work in our communities. But God takes the five loaves and two fish and he creates something miraculous. He does something supernatural. And I'd love for the guys from the BMC just to stand up just briefly. The guys that are here today that represent some of the community that form... Guys, guys, please remain standing for a minute. Actually, I'd like all the young people to stand. Those that are in junior high, high school, or college, please stand at this moment. Just stand where you're at. Go ahead. Thank you for standing. Because I know that God is doing a miraculous work inside of you. College students, high school, junior high students, I know that God is doing a work through you at your school. God is taking your small loaves and fish and miraculously transforming you and your communities. And Maple Grove College, people of Maple Grove, would you just take a look at these people? Do not overlook them. Do not overlook them. Do not look down on them because they are young. They have a couple of fish and a couple of loaves. And God uses that to miraculously change our lives. Invest in them, notice them, mentor them, empower them to change and lead our church and our community. You can be seated. Verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Surely, they said, he's the one. He's the one that will overthrow the Roman authorities. He will bring God's kingdom to earth. He will lead us into the promised land. This one is the prophet. Anyone think or recall who might they be referencing as the prophet? Anyone remember an Old Testament leader who fed people in the wilderness just before entering the promised land? It was Moses. After they fled Egypt, crossed, crossed the Red Sea, they made their way to the promised land, and they cried to Moses for, for food. And Moses cried to God, and God sent manna 
bread from heaven to fall down on the earth. And they ate it. And they were satisfied. Every one of them. And God gave specific instructions. He said, don't store this bread. Don't hoard this manna. Don't save this bread. If you keep it overnight, it will just spoil and rot. Just take what you need. Don't waste anything. Eat daily and you will be satisfied. And that's what they did. They wandered through the wilderness and God provided for their, for their needs. And they ate the manna and they were satisfied every day. And those that watched this miracle of the 5,000, they connected the dots and they looked at Jesus and says, He's the next Moses. He's the prophet that is to come. He's the one that will help us overcome this Roman oppression, this political threat that we're under. He's the one that will solve our economic problems. He's the one. And Jesus withdrew. Knowing they wanted to elevate him as some political king, knowing they wanted to elevate him and use some force to bring about God's kingdom to earth, he fled, he hid, because he did not come to solve political social and economic problems by force for some small nation 2,000 years ago, Jesus came for something bigger, something better, a much greater problem that we all face. We have to remember that John is into signs. John never records a miracle just for the sake of a miracle. John always says, this leads to that. This sign tells us about that. This sign, this miraculous sign, gives us a clue about who God is and what it means to have life. And now, John says, this isn't just for a meal for the day. This miracle points to something else, something bigger, something greater. And then Jesus explains the miracle. If you jump to verse 25, and 26, Jesus points to the greater issues, the bigger solution, the better life. He explains the miracle. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, Jesus crossed to the other side of the lake. They asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And then Jesus answered. Jesus explained the miracle. Jesus explained how this sign connects to a better life. And this is what he said. I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You're looking for me because you experienced satisfaction in your physical body. You ate the loaves. You tasted the fish. You left my presence satisfied. And then Jesus goes under the hood. He touches, he identifies our greatest, deepest problem. Jesus says these words to all of us longing to live a better life. Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils. Do not spin the wheel and just make it to your next payday. Do not live on the surface. Dig deeper. Search for more meaning in your life because your problem is deeper than food for a day. Your problem is much greater than your government, your family, or your food that spoils. You're actually separated from your heavenly Father. You are 
alienated from God and you don't even realize it because all day, every day, you're just trying to make it to the next payday, spinning the wheel, paying insurance, and working for food that spoils. And Jesus says to each one of us, don't do that. Don't work for food that spoils. Instead, instead of spinning the wheel, working for the next payday, instead, work for food that endures to eternal life. Now, oftentimes when we hear the word eternal life, we think about what happens after death. That when we die, we go to heaven. We think quantitatively. When we die, we go to heaven, and that's true, but that's not what Jesus is referencing. Jesus is not talking about a a quantity of time because we know that that we can all live a really long, bad, miserable life. We actually have a word for that. It's called hell. So, So we know that. That eternity is not about a quantity of life, but a quality of life. Jesus says, I have a life for you that is full of meaning and purpose and love and peace. See, there are two Greek words for life in the New Testament. One is bios and one is zoe. And and bios is your physical life. It's where we get the word biology. But zoe is this supernatural life, this abundant life, this eternal life, this life that is worth living. That's why I named my daughter Zoe, because that's the kind of life I want her to live, a supernatural, abundant, free life. And according to Jesus, we can experience this eternal, quality kind of life right here, right now, today. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? What must we do to live this kind of eternal life, to have this peace, rest, and love that you are talking about? How can we live this supernatural kind of life today? And Jesus answered them, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And I'm sure they were thinking, to believe, and what do we need to do? What about the Ten Commandments? What about love your neighbor? What about all those things that we need to do? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's nothing that you need to do to experience this eternal kind of life. There's someone that you need to believe. There's something you need to receive in order to experience this eternal, supernatural kind of life. The work that is required of you is to believe. This past week I was talking with a friend from another state about a problem that he was having a hard time overcoming. And although it may sound shocking to some of you, this successful Christian businessman, this husband, this father of children had this challenging problem with pornography. And I know that may sound shocking to some of you, but every man in the room can relate to this problem, whether it's lust or pornography or some other addictive tendency towards alcohol or food. There's this indulgence, this temptation that we all go after at times, that we're all tempted to satisfy and and eat food that spoils. 
And then my conversation with his friend from another state, he went on to describe, he says, it's so irrational. I can't believe that I do it. I mean, I got a great family. I know what's wrong. I set boundaries. But, but I just can't seem to overcome it. I need to figure this out. And my friend lived by this phrase, the only person that you can change is yourself. Maybe you've said that phrase before. The only person that I can change is myself, but it's not true. The only person that can change you is God. Sure, you can make cosmetic changes with your behavior, but the deep change, the lasting change that leads to eternal life, that type of change is not based on what you do, but on what you believe. Because you can't work your way out of eating food that does not satisfy. You must believe and receive forgiveness for your sins and allow the Holy Spirit to strengthen you to live a better life. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Sir, please, give us this bread. We're hungry. We don't, we're, we're thirsty. Could you please give us this bread right now? Sir, they said, from now on, from this day forward, please give us this bread to eat that will truly satisfy our souls. And Jesus said these words, these life-changing words for all of us that long to live a better life and live a satisfied life. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the one place where you can go, the one person that you can meet that will truly satisfy your soul. And the original readers that have heard these words in Greek, ego eimi. And ego eimi in the Greek is actually in the emphatic. So it almost sounds like Jesus is shouting, ego eimi, I am the bread of life. And everyone listening to Jesus at those first words would have remembered the first time that God said those words. I am. It was when he called Moses at the burning bush. And Moses was called to go to the people, and Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God described who he is by saying, tell them, I am has sent you. The I am, the great I am that had no beginning, that had no ending, that has existed forever, and that everything exists comes from the great I am. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the one that was before, that never had an ending. I am the one that exists forever. I am the one that will satisfy you, sustain you, and lead you to better life. But all too often, we work for food that spoils. We consume food that never satisfies. And it's not just the obvious bad stuff, like pornography or lust or gossip. It's not just the obvious bad sins. It's the good things 
It's our family, it's our friends, it's our, it's our jobs, it's the good things that God gives us that we consume thinking that they will satisfy us. It's the good things that God gives us that we love, worship, and cherish more than our loving, cherishing, and our growing relationship with God. See, Francis Shaver, author, author and theologian, is quoted as saying this, no human relationship is 100% satisfying. No human relationship is 100% satisfying. No marriage, no parent, no child, no boyfriend, no girlfriend, no human relationship will satisfy you 100%. But all too often we expect ultimate satisfaction from our relationship with our spouse or our relationship with our friends or our relationships with our girlfriend. And it never ever satisfies us completely. And all day, every day, Jesus whispers in our ears, Ego me. Ego me. I am the bread of life. I will satisfy your deepest longings. I am the one relationship that will satisfy you 100% because I lived the life you couldn't live. I died the death you deserve to die. I rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures, conquering sin and death forever. Consume me. I will satisfy you. I will make you whole. I will satisfy your soul and give you Life And what I find so instructive about the manna from heaven is that it came daily. I, I love the instructions Jesus, or that God gave him. He says, don't save it, don't hoard it, don't try to keep it for tomorrow. Daily come to me and I'll satisfy your physical hunger. Can you imagine if we did that spiritually? If after we got up in the morning, we had our breakfast and before we went out for the day, we, we, we daily came to Jesus and we connected with him and we consumed his presence. Can you imagine then we would go off to, to lunch and dinner and instead of just having a physical meal, we would have some spiritual connection with the bread of life and we'd reflect on our day and we'd pray about our future and we'd read the scriptures or we'd sing a song and we would connect and consume the bread of life. Can you imagine how your life might be different if you daily consumed and connected with the bread of life. We would probably see our young people differently. Instead of overlooking them with their five loaves and two fish, we would probably notice them, invest in them, and provide ways for them to lead us. We would probably see our problems differently. Instead of seeing our problems as problems, we would see them as opportunities to test us and strengthen our faith. In Jesus, instead of feeling anxious or angry when things don't go our way, we would say, that's a big deal. That's a big problem. But it's not my life. My life is in Christ. I'm satisfied in my relationship with God. If we really connected with Jesus daily, if we really fed on his word, experienced his presence, we just might live an eternal, abundant life right here, right now. We just might live a better life.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the truths that reside in your word. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to take this word and allow us to consume it, to feast on it, to experience your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness. Speak to us, O bread of life, in the deepest parts of our soul where we can confess our sin and experience your grace and forgiveness. Teach us, O oh God, I pray, to live a better life. In Jesus' name.